Alan Dershowitz is a lawyer and scholar of constitutional and criminal law. At the age of 28, he became the youngest person awarded a full professorship at Harvard when he began teaching at Harvard Law School. He retired in 2013 after almost 50 years with the school. He has also been part of a number of high-profile cases, including those involving O.J. Simpson and Harvey Weinstein, and Donald Trump's impeachment. Today, he discusses what he believes to be dangerous attacks on free expression nationwide. Let's listen in. Let me begin. Thank you so much for introducing me. I wish I were better at technology so you'd be able to see me with my uh, three months of no haircut and my Albert Einstein look of a big mess of gray hair. But uh, but uh, here I am on the on the telephone, and I just want to make one correction. The name of my book is Guilt by Accusation, not Guilt by Association, because the thesis is that if you're accused by the Me Too movement, there's no defense. It doesn't matter what the evidence is. You're guilty. You're guilty just because you're accused. And then the other point I wanted to make before I begin is that you mentioned I was the youngest professor ever appointed at Harvard. I was also the oldest person ever to argue on behalf of a president in a Senate impeachment trial. So I'm proud of having been young. I'm proud of having been old. And um, I'm proud mostly of having tried to defend the First Amendment all of my life. I grew up uh, with the New York Times. Uh, For me, the New York Times was the newspaper of record. And foolishly and naively, I believed what I read in the New York Times. Uh, I also believed what I heard on television, Walter Cronkite. uh, Everybody believed Walter Cronkite. I still believe everything I heard from Walter Cronkite, but I no longer believe what I read in most of the media because the media has become silos and uh, the New York Times has just repeatedly now gotten it wrong, gotten it wrong. Um, It has predicted wrong. It has anticipated court decisions wrong because it substitutes wishful thinking for careful analysis. Um, The story that we heard previously of Senator Tom Cotton, who was my student and a brilliant man. I disagreed with much that he wrote in his op-ed, but it was a very important op-ed to read. We have to know what 40, 45%, 50% of the country is thinking. And you'd think that the editorial pages of the New York Times would be a marketplace of ideas. But uh, when he uh, was allowed to publish his article, the newsroom objected. And here again, We have a clear violation of the distinction between news and uh, editorial policy. You know, it is supposed to be as sacred as the separation of church and state, the separation of opinion from news analysis. But the New York Times has broken that down. They now have something they call news analysis on the front page. And it's, of course, just an editorial disguised as news. And then on the editorial page, They're influenced by pressures from the news department as to what they can and can't run. And this poses a great danger to uh, both freedom of speech in the United States and political independence in the United States. Um, I've always thought of the media as the fourth branch of government, not original with me, obviously. Um, They serve as an important check and balance on the excesses of government both those in power and those uh, out of power. And when the media stops reporting objectively and analytically and simply takes sides as not only the New York Times, but uh, CNN, MSNBC, Fox on the other side, uh, it becomes much, much harder for people to really have firm opinions based on objective reality Uh, Unless they flip the channels and do what I do, and that is read uh, 10 or 15 newspapers um, and online services to try to at least get a sense of differences in reporting. But I think most people don't want that. Most people don't want to hear opposing points of view. I'll give you a few examples from my own personal life. I was banned by CNN, um, even though I was debating People like Jonathan uh, by uh, debating people like uh, Turley. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Tubin, Jonathan Tubin, uh, and others, um, and presenting different points of view. And then ultimately, uh, CNN decided they didn't want 
a liberal Democrat like me presenting arguments against the impeachment of uh, Trump. It was okay to have extreme right wingers because they could use them as exhibits. See how dumb these right wingers are? See how stupid these Republicans are? Uh, They're taking positions against uh, the impeachment of Trump. But if they have me on, I'm a liberal Democrat who voted against Trump, who voted for Hillary Clinton, that may actually persuade some people. And so CNN decided to ban me and not allow me any longer to be on their uh, shows. And um, uh, yes, it deprived me of a platform, but it also deprived the viewers of an ability to hear a point of view that they today don't hear. And I think we're seeing more and more of that networks and, and media companies banning uh, canceling, uh, not allowing alternative points of view to be uh, presented. So I think that poses a very serious danger, and it's part of a bigger problem. You know, I taught at Harvard for 50 years. I taught 10,000 students. And when I would start my class, my first year of class, I would see 150 scared students. I was a very tough teacher. I used the Socratic method. They were sitting there wondering whether they'd be called on. But what I saw was not 150 scared students. I saw the future president of the United States, the future chief justice, the future publisher, editor of major newspapers, uh, the future uh, senior managing partner of Goldman Sachs, because I had taught all of those students in my history. I had the great privilege of teaching future world leaders. But what I worry about is today's future world leaders aren't being taught how to think at universities. They're being told what to think. And they're being told that there is really no reason for freedom of speech or due process. After all, what do freedom of speech and due process have in common? They both reflect the fact that there may be doubts. Uh, 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 Oliver Cromwell, who said, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ to consider that you may be wrong. And uh, it was Learned Hand, the great judge, who said the spirit of liberty is the spirit that isn't too sure of itself. And what we're seeing is a, a double um, effect on university campuses today. Uh, one is we don't need alternative points of view because we know the truth with a capital T. Our professors told us what the truth is. and We know the truth. Uh, we know that uh, statues of uh, uh, people with mixed records should be taken down. You don't have to have a debate about that, about taking down George Washington, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, even now Jesus Christ. Uh, well, of course, there's only one approach. Of course, you take it down. Why do we need opposing points of view on that? Or if a person is accused, as I was, of having sex with a woman I never heard of, didn't meet, was never in the same place as ever. And how do I know that? Because I have it on emails from her admitting she never met me, a book manuscript admitting she never met me, a tape recording by her lawyer admitting that she couldn't have been in the same places and admitting that she's wrong, simply wrong. I wrote all of this up and guilt by accusation. But in college and university campuses, it doesn't matter. Why do you need due process? If a woman makes an accusation, of course, it's true. And to disbelieve a woman is to fall out of favor with the Me Too movement and other movements that are popular on campus. So we're seeing the death of both freedom of speech and due process uh, on university campuses. And it's very dangerous because these are our future leaders. And I think our future leaders, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, will have less sensitivity toward issues of due process. It's, it's free speech for me, but not for thee. Due process for me, but not for thee. Look, I grew up during the McCarthy period. And so I saw people from the extreme right trying to deny free speech and due process. Today, it comes largely from the extreme left. Of course, the extreme, extreme right, the neo-Nazis, the Holocaust deniers, the white supremacists, they don't believe in due process and free speech either, but they are marginal in our society. Nobody supports them. The hard left, on the other hand, has great support uh, from members of Congress, uh, political candidates, university presidents, deans, uh, professors, And so the censorship and the lack of due process from the hard left is far more dangerous for the future of America. The hard right is dangerous physically. They're the ones who attack synagogues. They're the ones who maybe attack churches uh, and other places. But when we talk about the future and the future of freedom of speech and due process, the dangers from the hard left are 
much, much greater. I want to just touch on one other point that's so interesting uh, about how the media deals with uh, issues of, of due process. So um, when uh, Kavanaugh, uh, who is now a justice of the Supreme Court, was accused of, of sexual misconduct, uh, only the um, uh, conservative media um, looked into the issues of the credibility of the accuser. The liberal media, the left-wing media, the democratic media, um, no, they assumed she was telling the truth and he was a bad guy. Uh, exactly the opposite of what happened with Bill Clinton. When he was accused, uh, the liberal media um, uh, gave him a pass and the conservative media went and looked. And I'm, I'm going through that now. The woman who accused me, a woman named Virginia Gouffre, has rocked, has rocked three countries in the world. She has rocked Great Britain, obviously, by accusing Prince Andrew. I don't know whether he did it or not, but he's been accused. He's denied it. And uh, he's no longer employed, basically, by, by the crown. Uh, so her accusations have rocked Great Britain. Her accusations now have rocked Israel because she has also accused um, Barack of having sex with her. And she's claimed that uh, she couldn't even mention his name because she was so afraid the Mossad would have her killed. Um, she has also accused Al Gore and Tipa Gore of cavorting with Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Clinton of cavorting with Jeffrey Epstein, notwithstanding the fact that Secret Service records conclusively established that none of the three of them ever set foot on Epstein's island. And she has criticized uh, and claimed to have had sex with George Mitchell, former majority leader of the Senate, and Bill Richardson, former the former ambassador to the UN, and me. And Yet not a single media in the United States, I repeat, not a single media in the United States has looked into the background of this false accuser, has done a study of all the false accusations she's made, all the falsehoods she's told, because there is no political benefit to doing that. Today, investigative journalism is motivated by whose side you're on. There's no longer investigative journalism that just looks to prove reality. So I challenge the media, any media, to look into the background of this woman who has rocked three countries, and yet nobody has looked into her background. And I'm going to make just one final point before we go to questioning, and that is the way in which the media has become so one-sided and so much of a silo has also had an impact on the accuracy of their reporting. I touched on this briefly in the beginning. For example, today, uh, the United States Court of Appeals ruled that uh, General Flynn's case could not go forward because there is no case in controversy. The justices, the, I'm sorry, the Justice Department wants to drop the case. The defendant wants the case dropped. The Constitution says you need a case in controversy. And so the court said, look, there's no case here. Neither side wants to litigate this. Not only that, but he didn't commit any crimes because whatever he said wasn't material to any investigation because they already knew he was being uh, talking to the ambassador because they had tape recorded the conversation. So the United States Court of Appeals ruled it had to be dropped. I predicted that. I said that was going to happen. I said the Constitution doesn't permit a judge to do what he did here, to hire another judge and have amicus briefs. Um, 500 law professors disagreed with me. Uh, they all said I was wrong. Uh, no, the court has jurisdiction to do that. Uh, hundreds of former prosecutors did that. All the left-wing networks predicted that the case would go forward, and, and I was wrong. Well, I turned out to be right, not because I'm smarter than any of those professors. The reason I turned out to be right on this and on all the other legal issues that we've had during the Trump administration, uh, DACA, uh, the issue of um, whether you could uh, prevent people from coming from Muslim countries. I always got it right. Why? Not because I'm smarter, but because I don't let my ideology interfere with my predictions and assessments. I call them as I see them, whereas many other, quote, experts in academics read the Constitution according to their own ideology. And the media does the same thing. Who's the victim of that? The victim of that are the poor viewers out there who believe the experts without knowing that the experts have put a thumb on the scale of their own ideology. So 
on balance, and I think we live in very, very dangerous times, on balance, in order for democracy to work, we need an informed uh, public. You know, it was Thomas Jefferson who famously said, before he became president, that given the choice between a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, he would not hesitate to choose newspapers without a government. That's before he became president. Then after he was vilified, he changed his mind. And he said, those who never read a newspaper are more informed and better educated than those who rely on newspapers for their information. So this is not a new problem. It's just that it's getting worse and worse and worse. And I fear for our country, I fear for our children and our grandchildren that they cannot open the pages of the New York Times, they cannot turn on the television and watch CNN and expect to get the truth anymore. Today, the challenge is where do you find the truth? My wife and I like to watch sometimes uh, television uh, together and we have two television screens. So you watch, say, the State of the Union message, or you watch the president's speech, or you watch the speech of somebody else, and then you watch CNN and you watch Fox, and you just saw two different speeches. CNN said, this is what the president said. Fox says, this is what the president said. They are diametrically opposed, but we've just seen what the president said, and we can decide for ourselves. But we're told what the reality is by the silo media. And that's so dangerous to democracy. So I hope that this wonderful organization that invited me today can take the lead in trying to restore the integrity of the media, trying to restore the importance of our First Amendment, our First Amendment's freedom of speech, our Fifth Amendment's due process. We are in danger of losing two core principles of democracy, freedom of speech and due process. So we are living in interesting times, and may the interesting times be turned to useful and good ends rather than just merely partisan ends. So thank you for your attention. I'm looking forward to some tough questions. Okay, there are lots of questions, Alan. Uh, But before we get started, thank you very much for that. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge Tom O'Halloran, who's a congressman from Arizona. He's on uh, the phone, but... He's not the first questioner. Uh, first question comes from Doug Scrivener. Doug, are you there? I am here. Thank you. And Professor, thank you for, uh, for your thoughts. Um, sort of building on uh, some of your comments, uh, much of the uh, reporting that we, you know, quote unquote reporting that we see on the Supreme Court in particular is always through the filter of who appointed the judge or the partisan view of, do I like the policy outcome as opposed to the legal analysis? Do you see any way that we can get to a point where the media takes that lens off and reports truly on, on sort of legal merits, legal analysis, as opposed to policy preference? Yeah, I think that there are two two problems. One, how we appoint Supreme Court justices, what we expect of Supreme Court justices. Chief Justice Roberts, uh, who I remember as a law student, um, went out of his way to say there are no such things as Republican justices or Democratic justices. There are no such thing as Obama appointed justices or Trump appointed justices. I wish he were right. Uh, just read Bush versus Gore, the 2000 uh, decision that... Um, ended the vote in in Florida, whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision, it was five to four with five Republican appointees going one way and the four Democratic appointees going uh, the other way. Um, That's not uh, exclusively in that case, but in many other cases as well. Of course, I'm always happy when I see one of the conservative justices like Gorsuch uh, voting with the liberals or Roberts voting with the liberals or sometimes a liberal voting with the conservatives because it restores my faith a little bit in the law. Even today's reporting in the New York Times about the decision regarding uh, General Flynn went out of its way to point out that the decision was written by a Trump appointee, somebody who had worked in the Trump administration, and the dissent was written by an Obama appointee. So the media accurately reports those facts, 
but it makes it sound as if the decision was necessarily a function of the political and partisan views of the person, uh, of the judge. And uh, so there are two institutions that have to change for that to change. One, the appointing process. Um, um, you know, there's a great story of Herbert Hoover, who was probably one of the most qualified people ever to run for president of the United States. Of course, he had the unfortunate fact of uh, presiding over the d depression. Um, but um, uh, when he got to appoint uh, a justice to replace Oliver Wendell Holmes, he asked his attorney general to give him the 10 most qualified judges in America uh, to serve on the Supreme Court. And he got the list and he looked at the list and it had nine names on top. And the bottom name was Benjamin Cardoza, who was the chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals. And by all accounts, the most distinguished sitting judge in the country. And he turned to his attorney general and said, it's a great list, but you have it upside down. Um, Cardoza should be on top. And the attorney general said, no, 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 you understand. He's a Democrat. Uh, he's a liberal. Uh, he's from New York. We don't need New York in the next election. We're not going to, it's not a competitive state. And he's Jewish. And there's already a Jew on the Supreme Court, Justice Brandeis. So he's in the bottom of the list. And Hoover said, no, 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 he's on the top of my list. I don't care. For Oliver Wendell Holmes, I want him to be replaced by the greatest judge sitting in America today. And he appointed a liberal Democratic Jew from New York to serve on the Supreme Court. When's the last time something like that has, has happened? Unfortunately, um, we now, uh, nominations to the Supreme Court are made on the basis of trying to have influence for generations to come on the politics of the country. And um, did it start with the Bork appointment? Uh, that was probably uh, a major event in our history, the Bork appointment, where he was highly qualified to be on the Supreme Court, but he was an arch conservative and uh, led by liberals uh, like Ted Kennedy and my colleague Larry Tribe, who advised Ted Kennedy. The nomination was defeated in a close vote. Um, and it's interesting because Justice Scalia, who was just as conservative, um, um, uh, I think made it with a 98 to nothing vote. Um, and so uh, I wish we could get to the day when we would have every president would have a list of the most qualified people without regard to party and uh, ideology and uh, political ideology. I mean, not judicial philosophy and would make those appointments. And then the newspapers could not report that uh, the decision was based exclusively on the party and the background of the person. But unfortunately, there is some truth to that reporting and the judges have a responsibility to make sure that, not that we deny that that truth as Justice Roberts did, but that we make that truth into a falsehood and make sure that there are more cases where people cross party lines and vote according to the Constitution. Okay, the second question uh, comes from Bill Kunkler. Bill, are you there? Uh, good afternoon. My, my, I don't really have a question. I was just commenting, you know, you talked about the New York Times, uh, Mr. Dershowitz, but I look yeah. at, you know, I'm a, I'm a old fashioned establishment Republican and I've, I've stopped watching Fox News. I think it's shameful how they, you know, I, I view it as Trump TV at this point and just don't pay any attention to it. So that's my comment. Thank you. Yeah. Well, no, if I, I think, could just I add think, something. Yeah, no, sure. Sorry. Well, I was just Go gonna ahead, say that, that one of the mistakes that that the, the TV cable programs make is they don't, people don't understand the difference between Brett Baer and Chris Wallace who do, you know, straight, balanced kind of reporting, right. in, in my opinion. And and the people that clearly are not balanced, uh, Laura Ingram, uh, Han Reddy, people like that. And people don't understand when they watch television uh, that there's a distinction between news and commentary because it all looks the same to them. So just a thought I had. No, I... I I think that's exactly right. I think people fail to understand that. And I think the networks have a responsibility in the beginning of their shows to say, we are now reporting the news and we have only objective news that we're reporting. And then to say in the evening shows, these are opinion shows. Uh, and um, I think all the networks should do that. 
And I think uh, the, the newspaper should do a better job, as I said, separating out. There, there shouldn't be any such thing as news analysis uh, on the front page of the New York Times. If the New York Times wants to have three sections, news, just reporting the news, opinion, reporting opinion, and then a third section, news analysis, which is kind of half and half opinionated evaluation of the news, let them do that. But I think truth and labeling is crucially important. And I think you make a very, very important point. As long as we are told what we're watching or reading, then we have the responsibility to decide how much weight to give it. Okay, the next question is from Bob Ziedman. Bob, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. So, uh, uh, Professor Dershowitz, first of all, uh, so I'm gonna ask you a question. First, I wanna say, uh, as a conservative Republican, uh, you're one of my heroes because they're just no, people who uh, uh, really uh, look at the Constitution as, and, as you say, without emotion, without ideology, and, and understand its principles and, and apply them uh, equally. So, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that, and I really appreciate the message. Well, thank you so much. So. Uh, the question I'm going to ask is, is what can we do? And, and one of the things we're all doing is uh, joining no labels, which I think is part of the solution. But let me tell you what worries me the most about what's going on in our country right now with regard to uh, our American values. I'm 60. I, my parents fought, uh, my, my aunts and my uncles fought in World War II. My grandparents came here to escape persecution in Russia and Poland. I thought that my generation understood these values, but what I'm finding is I'm losing friends at a very fast pace because they are doing things like uh, um, supporting the Me Too movement where they think that, they're, that, that people can be accused of a crime and, and therefore they're guilty. They're, they're supporting the uh, terrible uh, burning down of cities and uh, destruction of property and even murder that's going on. I've actually had people justify murder of people for the better, the cause of, of uh, bettering society. And I, I understand the argument that millennials didn't experience the things that our parents and grandparents did, and they're not getting the education we did, but I went to school with these people. We learned about American values. We learned about the American Revolution and the Civil War and the Bill of Rights, and yet they're abandoning them. Uh, my solution has been to join no labels. I've been writing articles that, that fortunately people don't read because I'm afraid of losing my job for uh, just stating mm -hmm. something. So what, what do you think the solution is? Well, no, your, your, your point is very accurate. Today, you can lose your job if you raise questions about the Black Lives Movement and whether they're going too far and whether or not uh, uh, tearing down statues is consistent with the American values. You can lose your job for expressing points of view that are politically incorrect. It's a form of left-wing McCarthyism. The same thing is true of false accusations. It doesn't matter whether the accusation is true or false, as it didn't during McCarthyism. If you're accused, you must be guilty. And this is such a violation of core American values. And you say you went to school and you learned about the American Revolution. Students today go to school and they don't learn about the American Revolution. They read Howard Zinn's American history and they only learn the negatives about America. They only learn about the negatives of Thomas Jefferson, the negatives of George Washington, even the negatives of Abraham Lincoln. They don't learn the positives. They don't get. Now, you know, it may be that in my day when we all grew up as patriots and loved America and were uncritical of anything, maybe it was too far the other way. Maybe we didn't learn enough about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Maybe we didn't learn enough about some of Abraham Lincoln's views uh, of African-American people. Maybe we didn't learn enough, but we have to strike an appropriate balance and we can't turn America, which is the greatest country in the history of the world with all of its flaws. Uh, we can't turn it into a country without virtues. And I see that happening here. I see that happening I see it happening with Israel, too, where the college students today actually believe Israel is the worst country, the worst human rights violator in the world, and yet no country in history faced with threats comparable to those faced by Israel has ever had a better record of human rights, more compliance with the rule of law, more concern for enemy civilians. Is it a perfect country? Of course not. 
But the idea that we now judge good countries as purely evil, America, Israel, and other countries like that, um, is a terrible miseducation of our students. And, 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 and we cannot allow teachers, you know, teachers have tenure because of unions and stuff, but we cannot allow teachers who have academic freedom to deny their students academic freedom. Students have academic freedom too, and they shouldn't be graded down for expressing views different from the views expressed by their teachers. And so it's very, very important that um, we monitor what's going on in our education system and make sure that our future leaders aren't being propagandized instead of being educated. You know, 50 years of teaching at Harvard, I never expressed opinions in my classroom about my own personal views. Students didn't know, unless they read my outside work, how strongly I opposed the death penalty. Because in class, I played the devil's advocate and made the arguments in favor of the death penalty because I wanted to make sure my students could argue convincingly either way. And so I never taught my students what to think. I always taught them how to think. And I get a lot of comments back from students now, years and years later, thanking me for doing that. But too many teachers feel they have a, quote, moral ideological obligation to teach their students political correctness. And the way to enforce that is by grading them down if they dare to express views that are politically incorrect. Okay, thank you. The next question uh, is from Mike Precog. Thank you. Um, I'm here in California. Professor, I'm a fan, and uh, but I want to mention a, I guess I would call it a company that I find valuable. It's valuable to me in what I'm trying to do because I need unbiased views of, of, of the day. And, and have you ever heard of All Sides? Maybe Tony has. I haven't, no. Tell me about okay. it. So what, what they do, and you go look at them. I, I have no investment in them at all. What they do is they track the bias of different publications and they do a good so job of sorting it out what's on the right what's on the left what's in the middle you know the wall street journal is sort of barely right center and the times is on the left and you know you you can sort through those and now they've gotten better now you can go and you can find a story of the day and you can go look at what has been published from those publications that are considered on the left or the center on the right and I need that information from what I'm doing, That's and I great. find them invaluable, and, and they're getting better all the time. And so um, I just want to give a shout out to them and, and suggest you might want to look at them. That's a, that sounds wonderful. It sounds like, you know, if you really do get objectively all sides of the issue, that's what we want. We want people to hear all the possible arguments and then decide for themselves. And I have to tell you, just too many Americans have given up deciding for themselves, and they just go into these silos and and listen only to points of view. You know, my my picture of people sitting in front of the television set now is a picture of somebody sitting there shaking their head yes. Just shaking their head yes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Please say that again. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear that the Supreme Court is going to decide the case this way. I want to hear that this is the right view. I don't want to hear anybody telling me anything that makes me think, my God, do I have to think? No, I know the truth with a capital T. That's so much more comforting than uh, hearing conflicting points of view that give you a cognitive dissonance and make you say to yourself, you know, maybe I'm not right. Maybe I have to rethink some of these things. That's very difficult for people to do today. Another organization that you should know about if you don't is FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights. I was one of the, I helped to start that organization a long time ago. My protege, Harvey Silverglade, is the founding, and Alan Coors are the founding members of that organization. It's a phenomenal organization. I support it. I like it. Uh, they believe in due process. They believe in free speech. And they've taken over for the ACLU, which is dead in the water. The ACLU today, I was on the national board of the ACLU. I was an active member of the ACLU. I was on the local board of the ACLU. I've litigated death penalty cases and other cases on behalf of the ACLU. I won't send them a nickel today because they no longer support objective free speech, due process. For them, it's free speech and due process for me, but not for thee. Um, they only, they have played no role at all 
in trying to promote free speech and due process on college campuses today. Yeah, every so often, every five years, they'll defend the Nazis. That's so easy to do. They'll say, see, we defended the Nazis, free speech. Wow, aren't we wonderful? But when the real issues come up on college campuses, they're nowhere to be seen. They were nowhere to be seen during the Trump impeachment because they would lose money if they were perceived as saying or doing anything that helped uh, President Trump. You know, when I was on the national board, I was a strong supporter of the impeachment of President uh, Nixon. I thought he had committed impeachable offenses. I don't think Trump committed impeachable offenses, nor Clinton. But I thought that that Nixon committed impeachable offenses. But I urged the ACLU not to take a formal position in favor of impeachment because that was political, but instead to stand up and defend Nixon's due process rights to be in court saying, you know, he shouldn't be named as an unindicted co-conspirator because that's not fair. An unindicted co-conspirator can't litigate the case because he's not been indicted. And it makes somebody accused without an opportunity to defend himself. The ACLU doesn't do that anymore. It raises a fortune just by being the leading edge of the anti-Trump political campaign and um, not standing up for due process and uh, freedom of speech when it comes to the most important areas on college campuses and other places. Well, I do urge everybody to look into FIRE Foundation for Individual Education. Okay, the next question is from Howard Sherman. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, you know, if hypothetically or in theory, the, the justices on the Supreme Court are the smartest or among the smartest, and yet it sure seems, and I haven't done a, the numbers on it, but anecdotally that there is a skewing and they come out one side or another. In fact, when a, when a justice crosses over, it's big news. And in yeah. fact, the president runs on, I'm going to get you the justices you want. Right. Right. And so so if we we're trying to fix us down on the ground, but up there in the hallowed chambers of the Supreme Court, how do we fix that? Well, that you've asked the hardest question uh, both presidents, both presidential candidates this year are going to run on. There are going to be two vacancies fairly soon, probably Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, 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 and Steve Breyer, my former colleague. Um, and um, therefore, whoever gets to make those two appointments will have an enormous influence on the future. And, you know, also presidents are appointing younger and younger people. Um, they want people in their 40s so that they can serve on the Supreme Court for 40 years. Um, and so when presidential elections uh, turn on who you're going to appoint to the Supreme Court, and then, you know, the, the, the congressional uh, leaders uh, also manipulate. Look, I think one of the worst things that happened is when President Obama legitimately appointed to the Supreme Court a moderate um, and um, uh, in, the, in the last year of his term, uh, Merrick Garland, who was also a student at Harvard Law School, and a man who could have been appointed by either a Republican president or a Democratic president. He had been on the D.C. Circuit and had been down the middle for all the years he was there. But the Senate leadership decided not even to allow a vote to be taken. And they denied President Obama uh, the right to make a, a political appointment. And that's going to come back to haunt the Republicans, too, because if, if, God forbid, Ruth Bader Ginsburg were to get sick in the next few months or resign in the next few months, uh, the Democrats would do everything in their power uh, to deny um, a vote. Of course, they're in the minority in the Senate, so they probably wouldn't succeed. But those kinds of games shouldn't be played by either side. Uh, President um, Obama should have gotten to make his appointment. In fact, I think he made a mistake. I think when the Senate refused to allow a vote on Merrick Garland, the president should have announced, I am appointing him as an interim appointment. I am swearing him in because the Constitution says that the president gets to appoint the justice with the advice and consent of the Senate. And if the Senate refuses to give advice and consent, I'm going to appoint that person. The president didn't listen to me and didn't make that appointment because he assumed, like everybody else, that Hillary Clinton would win the election and she would either reappoint him or somebody even further to the left of him. So they didn't do that. And uh, the gamesmanship played by the Senate leadership, I think, helped to politicize the appointing process of Supreme Court justices and didn't serve 
I think, the interests of the Constitution. Okay, Jared Carney. Carney, you're you're next up. Thank you uh, very much, Mr. Ritter. Um, and I very much appreciated um, your letter and I circulated it to a great number of friends. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Professor Dershowitz, what you're describing has been something that we've known about now um, in pretty great detail since Harold Bloom's closing of the American mind. And right. obviously we're unfortunately reaping what's been sown in our society. So I'd like to try to get to the roots and what's different today and in our society in ways that perhaps we can fix things. What we It seems to me that what we lack is not only a valid and open marketplace of ideas and the principles that support it, but we also lack commonality of experience. We don't, as Americans, have, um, we don't have a lexicon that we share through, sorry, Alan Bloom, thank you, Bill, for correcting me. Um, we, don't, we don't seem to share um, a, um, a, uh, you know, a set of shared experiences that inform us as Americans and, and, and reinforce the values that you and I and others hold dear. You know, I'm thinking specifically shared military, um, service, um, which could not, mm-hmm. doesn't just have to be military, could also be, um, other types of service, but I'm, I agree. I'm, I agree. So, I'm trying to get to a prescription that's outside the realm of education and jurisprudence. Look, I think you're right. Um, and I do think I favor, by the way, um, every single American having to serve his country or her country for a year or two years, um, either in the military or in some kind of civilian uh, process. It has to be there has to be a lot of freedom of choice in it, but I think service to one's country is something that gives us shared experiences um, and uh, can be very, very important. Um, We've always been a country of diversity. Um, When my grandparents came over from Poland in 1889 and 1906, respectively, uh, they didn't have a lot of shared experiences, but they were so anxious to become Americans. my grandmother used to take me to the Statue of Liberty on July 4th and make me uh, pledge allegiance and sing not only the first stanza of the national anthem, but the second stanza as well that almost nobody knows. But my grandmother, with her thick Yiddish-Polish accent, could recite the second stanza of the um, uh, national anthem um, because she loved America so much, because America had saved her from the pogroms in Poland and the anti-Semitism of Europe. So, you know, patriotism is a very important part of of commonality. You can be a patriot and disagree with a particular administration and disagree with particular policies, but I think appreciating and loving our country uh, is an important component of that. And the statues that stand all over our cities are part of that common heritage, and it breaks my heart to see the statue of Teddy Roosevelt taken down in front of the Museum of Natural History. I hope it will be replaced by another statue of um, of Teddy Roosevelt. The reason they say they're taking it down is standing at his side was a black man and a Native American, and it showed them in subordinate positions. Okay, but at least let's make sure that Teddy Roosevelt's legacy as a great uh, person preserving the environment and et cetera. Was he perfect? No, uh, he was, uh, you know, very active in the war against Spain. There is, you know, the interesting thing, I wonder how many people know this, the difference between the Jewish Bible on the one hand and the Christian Bible on the one, uh, and, and the Quran, uh, are that the Quran and the Christian Bible all have perfect figures that you can emulate. Jesus is perfect. Nobody could be better than Jesus. He, he was perfect about everything. Muhammad, according to the Quran, is perfect. The Jewish Bible, and nobody's perfect. Uh, King David sends his person out to be killed because he wanted to have sex with his wife. Abraham pretends his wife is his sister. Moses does all kinds of terrible things. There's no such thing as a perfect human being in the Jewish Bible. And I wish we could all learn that. Uh, none of our 
founding fathers, and I wish there were more founding mothers. I mean, that was true also. We didn't have founding mothers because we didn't have equality until the uh, Constitution was amended. Uh, we are an imperfect society, but we're a great society. Jefferson is a great, great man. I have Jefferson's picture hanging in my office. I will not take it down. I wouldn't care how many students demanded that I take down Jefferson's picture. It is not coming down. He is a great man. The Declaration of Independence is a marvelous, wonderful document. And I just think we have to learn to live with imperfection and learn to understand that there's no perfect person. I wrote a book to my students called Letters to a Young Lawyer, and I started out by saying, don't have heroes because they'll all disappoint you. They all have clay feet. Nobody is perfect. And until and unless we come to realize that, we're going to expect too much of our leaders and too much of our heroes. Okay, our last question comes from Jonathan Risch. Thank you. Um, I was curious to get your opinion of the current Roberts Court, and in particular, your commentary, your thoughts on the, the perspectives that perhaps uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, is trying to depoliticize the courts with some of the decisions that seem counter mm -hmm. to um, how people perceived he would mm -hmm. uh, rule, in particular right. Uh, right. DACA, ACA, and, um, and also the recent um, reading of uh, the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Like the, I think one of the best things that happened to America and to the Supreme Court is that uh, John Roberts, was, who was initially appointed to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court, was immediately made the chief justice. This is a speculation. I've known John Roberts for a long time. I supported his nomination. I thought he was one of the most qualified lawyers ever appointed to the Supreme Court. His record as an appellate lawyer and appellate judge was superb, even though he and I would disagree about great many issues. I'm a liberal. He's a conservative. But I supported his nomination very strongly. I think the fact that he was made chief justice uh, changed his approach and his attitude. I think if he were an associate justice, he would be voting his conscience more, voting more based on what he actually uh, believed in terms of values. Um, I think as the chief justice, he sees his role a little bit differently. You put your finger on it. He wants to depoliticize the court. He wants to make sure that the court isn't as a divisive an institution as it could possibly be. He looks for common ground. You know, he has the power as chief justice, if he's in the majority, to appoint the writer of the opinion. And I think he sometimes joins the majority and assigns the opinion to somebody who he knows will write a moderate opinion. I suspect that may have happened recently with Justice Gorsuch signing, writing um, the um, opinion that people were surprised he wrote. So, the Supreme Court is the current Supreme Court is a good court. It has you know, good justices. Are they the nine best lawyers in America, the nine smartest lawyers in America? No, but the Supreme Court has rarely been that. It's a court that uh, has ideological differences. Um, you know, I know a lot of the members personally. Obviously, Steve Breyer was my colleague, and I pushed very hard to have him appointed to the Supreme Court, Elena Kagan was my colleague and, and my dean. Um, I worked with um, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg when uh, we worked together on some civil liberties issues back in the day. Um, I knew several of the justices as students. So, you know, I have a, a close familiarity with the court and it's a good court. And um, uh, do I agree with all of its opinions? No. And sometimes I agree with the result, but not the methodology. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a court that has served the country well in, in general. Um, I wish it were a little less divided, a little less politicized. And, uh, I hope that whoever is elected president, um, in November of this year, will consider appointing people who are centrists. Um, I think in general, our country is moving too far. To extremes on the extreme right and the extreme left. I have a new book that's just coming out. It's called The Case for Liberalism in an Age of Extremism, or Why I Left the Left but Can't Join the Right. Um, and I, I think of myself as politically homeless, also as without labels. So that's why I'm so 
happy to have spoken to this great organization because I'm without labels these days too. And uh, to the extent that we can promote centerism and bipartisanism in politics and in the Supreme Court, I think we will help America uh, remain what it is, the greatest country in the history of the world, the greatest experiment in democracy, pluralism, diversity, all the great virtues, imperfect as it is, the greatest country in the history of the world. I'm so proud to be an American. Uh, Bill Gelson, who is our uh, co-founder uh, of No Labels, uh, senior fellow at Brookings, uh, is going to provide the close. Bill? <clears throat> Thanks, Tony. And thank you, Professor Dershowitz, for being so generous with your time and your opinions. Uh, you said something very interesting about Justice Roberts uh, towards the end of, of the hour. You said that uh, if he were an associate justice, maybe he would vote his conscience more. But mm -hmm. as chief justice, he views it as an important part of his job to search for common ground. I think there's, right. I think there's something deeply instructive about that contrast because the, the founding proposition of no labels is that right now we are all or ought to be in the position of Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, doing what we can to look for common ground, uh, which means compromise, which means mm -hmm. not insisting on every jot and tittle of what your most preferred outcome. Uh, it requires a lot of self-discipline, but it is essential for the future of the country. So you have just crystallized what No Labels is all about, the contrast between Justice Roberts and Chief Justice Roberts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we are doing everything possible with the help of the people on this call and in an, a swelling army of people like the people on this call who are flocking to our cause in cities across the country to make this uh to make this country a functional country politically, despite the profound differences uh, that we're now experiencing and which you, which you talked about and represented uh, during the past hour. So once again, thank you very much. Uh, and we've learned something, uh, and I hope you've learned something about the mission mm -hmm. of the labels and its importance for the future. I think with that- I have. I have learned something. Thank you for including me in this conversation. Alan Dershowitz discusses the recent op-ed in the New York Times by Senator Tom Cotton that led to the resignations of two of the paper's editors. He notes the trend among media outlets of banning commentators or authors who might have controversial opinions. He sees a similar trend in universities. He goes on to note the dangers of the seeming elimination of free speech and due process that continue to go uninvestigated by the media. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.